Chapter Eleven of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. March was one of those wives who exact a more rigid adherence to their ideals from their husbands than from themselves. Early in their married life, she had taken charge of him in all matters which she considered practical. She did not include the business of breadwinning in these. That was an affair that might safely be left to his absent-minded, dreamy inefficiency, and she did not interfere with him there. But in such things as rehanging the pictures, deciding on a summer boarding-place, taking a seaside cottage, repapering rooms, choosing seats at the theatre, seeing what the children ate when she was not at table, shutting the cat out at night, keeping run of calls and invitations, and seeing if the furnace was dampered, he had failed her so often that she felt she could not leave him the slightest discretion in regard to a flat. Her total distrust of his judgment in the matters cited, and others like them, consisted with the greatest admiration of his mind and respect for his character. She often said that if he would only bring these to bear in such exigencies he would be simply perfect, but she had long given up his ever doing so. She subjected him, therefore, to an iron code, but after proclaiming it she was apt to abandon him to the native lawlessness of his temperament. She expected him in this event to do as he pleased, and she resigned herself to it with considerable comfort in holding him accountable. He learned to expect this, and after suffering keenly from her disappointment with whatever he did, he waited patiently till she forgot her grievance, and began to extract what consolation lurks in the irreparable. She would almost admit at moments that what he had done was a very good thing, but she reserved the right to return in full force to her original condemnation of it, and she accumulated each act of independent volition in witness and warning against him. Their mass oppressed but never deterred him. He expected to do the wrong thing when left to his own devices, and he did it without any apparent recollection of his former misdeeds and their consequences. There was a good deal of comedy in it all, and some tragedy. He now experienced a certain expansion, such as husbands of his kind will imagine, on going back to his hotel alone. It was perhaps a revulsion from the pain of parting, and he toyed with the idea of Mrs. Grosvenor Green's apartment which, in its preposterous unsuitability, had a strange attraction. He felt that he could take it with less risk than anything else they had seen, but he said he would look at all the other places in town first. He really spent the greater part of the next day in hunting up the owner of an apartment that had neither steam-heat nor an elevator, but was otherwise perfect, and trying to get him to take less than the agent asked. By a curious psychical operation he was able, in the transaction, to work himself into quite a passionate desire for the apartment, while he held the Grosvenor Green apartment in the background of his mind as something that he could return to as altogether more suitable. He conducted some simultaneous negotiation for a furnished house, which enhanced still more the desirability of the Grosvenor Green apartment. Towards evening he went off at a tangent far uptown, so as to be able to tell his wife how utterly preposterous the best there would be as compared even with this ridiculous Grosvenor Green Jim Crackery. It is hard to report the processes of his sophistication. Perhaps this, again, may best be left to the marital imagination. 
He rang at the last of these uptown apartments, as it was falling dusk, and it was long before the janitor appeared. Then the man was very surly, and said if he looked at the flat now, he would say it was too dark like all the rest. His reluctance irritated March in proportion to his insincerity in proposing to look at it at all. He knew he did not mean to take it under any circumstances, that he was going to use his inspection of it in dishonest justification of his disobedience to his wife. But he put on an air of offended dignity. "'If you don't wish to show the apartment,' he said, "'I don't care to see it.' The man groaned, for he was heavy, and no doubt dreaded the stairs. He scratched a match on his thigh, and led the way up. March was sorry for him, and he put his fingers on a quarter in his waistcoat pocket to give him at parting. At the same time he had to trump up an objection to the flat. This was easy, for it was advertised as containing ten rooms, and he found the number eked out with the bathroom and two large closets. "'It's light enough,' said March, "'but I don't see how you make out ten rooms.' "'There's ten rooms,' said the man, deigning no proof. March took his fingers off the quarter, and went downstairs and out of the door without another word. It would be wrong, it would be impossible, to give the man anything after such insolence. He reflected with shame that it was also cheaper to punish than forgive him. He returned to his hotel prepared for any desperate measure and convinced now that the Grosvenor Green apartment was not merely the only thing left for him, but was, on its own merits, the best thing in New York. Fulkerson was waiting for him in the reading-room, and it gave March the curious thrill with which a man closes with temptation when he said, "'Look here, why don't you take that woman's flat in the Xenophon? She's been at the agents again, and they've been at me. She likes your look, or Mrs. March's, and I guess you can have it at a pretty heavy discount from the original price. I'm authorized to say you can have it for one seventy-five a month, and I don't believe it would be safe for you to offer one fifty. March shook his head, and dropped a mask of virtuous rejection over his corrupt acquiescence. It's too small for us. We couldn't squeeze into it. Why, look here, Fulkerson persisted. How many rooms do you people want? I've got to have a place to work. Of course, and you've got to have it at the fifth-wheel office. I hadn't thought of that, March began. I suppose I could do my work at the office, as there's not much writing. Why, of course you can't do your work at home. You just come round with me now and look at that again. No, I can't do it. Why? I, I've got to dine. All right, said Fulkerson, dine with me. I want to take you round to a little Italian place that I know. One may trace the successive steps of March's descent in this simple matter with the same edification that would attend the study of the self-delusions and obfuscations of a man tempted to crime. The process is probably not at all different, and to the philosophical mind the kind of result is unimportant, the process is everything. Fulkerson led him down one block and half across another, to the steps of a small dwelling-house, transformed, like many others, into a restaurant of the Latin ideal, with little or no structural change from the pattern of the lower middle-class New York home. There were the corroded brownstone steps, the mean little front door, and the cramped entry with its narrow stairs by which ladies could go up to a dining-room appointed for them on the second floor. The parlours on the first were set about with tables, 
where men smoked cigarettes between the courses, and the single waiter ran swiftly to and fro with plates and dishes, and exchanged unintelligible outcries with the cook beyond a slide in the back parlour. He rushed at the newcomers, brushed the soiled tablecloth before them with a towel on his arm, covered its worst stains with a napkin, and brought them, in their order, the vermicelli soup, the fried fish, the cheese-strewn spaghetti, the veal cutlets, the tepid roast fowl and salad, and the wizened pear and coffee which formed the dinner at such places. "'Ah, this is nice,' said Fulkerson, after the laying of the charitable napkin, and he began to recognize acquaintances, some of whom he described to March as young literary men and artists with whom they should probably have to do. Others were simply frequenters of the place, and were of all nationalities and religions, apparently. At least several were Hebrews and Cubans. "'You get a pretty good slice of New York here,' he said, all except the frosting on top. That you won't find much at Maroney's, though you will occasionally. I don't mean the ladies ever, of course. The ladies present seemed harmless and reputable-looking people enough, but certainly they were not of the first fashion, and, except in a few instances, not Americans. It's like cutting straight down through a fruit-cake, Fulkerson went on, or a mince pie, when you don't know who made the pie. You get a little of everything. He ordered a small flask of Chianti with the dinner and it came in its pretty wicker jacket. March smiled upon it with tender reminiscence, and Fulkerson laughed. "'Lights you up a little. I brought old Dryfoos here one day, and he thought it was sweet oil. That's the kind of bottle they used to have it in at the country drug stores.' "'Yes, I remember now, but I'd totally forgotten it,' said March. "'How far back that goes! Who's Dryfoos?' "'Dryfoos?' Fulkerson, still smiling, tore off a piece of the half-yard of French loaf which had been supplied them with two pale, thin disks of butter, and fed it into himself. "'Old Dryfoos? Well, of course. I call him old, but he ain't so very. About fifty or along there.' "'No,' said March, "'that isn't very old, or not so old as it used to be.' "'Well, I suppose you've got to know about him anyway,' said Fulkerson thoughtfully. "'And I've been wondering—' just how i should tell you can't always make out exactly how much of a bostonian you really are ever been out in the natural gas country no said march i've had a good deal of curiosity about it but i've never been able to get away except in summer and then we always preferred to go over the old ground out to niagara and back through canada the route we took on our wedding journey the children like it as much as we do yes yes said fulkerson well, the natural gas country is worth seeing. I don't mean the Pittsburgh gas fields, but out in northern Ohio and Indiana, around Moffat. That's the place in the heart of the gas region that they've been booming so. Yes, you ought to see that country. If you haven't been west for a good many years, you haven't got any idea of how old the country looks. You remember how the fields used to be all full of stumps? I should think so. Well, you won't see any stumps now. All that country out around Moffat is just as smooth as a checkerboard, and looks as old as England. You know how we used to burn the stumps out, and then somebody invented a stump extractor, and we pulled them out with a yoke of oxen. Now they just touch them off with a little dynamite, and they've got a cellar dug and filled up with kindling ready for housekeeping whenever you want it. Only they haven't got any use for kindling in that country. All gas. 
I rode along in the cars through those level black fields at corn-planting time, and every once in a while I'd come to a place with a piece of ragged old stove-pipe stickin' up out of the ground and blazing away like forty, and a fellow ploughing all round it and not minding it any more than if it were spring violets. Horses didn't notice it either. Well, they've always known about the gas out there. They say there are places in the woods where it's been burning ever since the country was settled. But when you come in sight of Moffat, my, oh, my! Well, you come in smell of it about as soon. That gas out there ain't odorless like the Pittsburgh gas, and so it's perfectly safe, but the smell isn't bad, about as bad as the finest kind of benzene. Well, the first thing that strikes you when you come to Moffat is the notion that there has been a good, warm, growing rain, and the towns come up overnight. That's in the suburbs, the annexes and additions. But it ain't shabby, no shanty-farm business, nice brick-and-frame houses, some of em Queen Anne style, and all of em looking as if they had come to stay. And when you drive up from the depot you think everybody's moving. Everything seems to be piled into the street, old houses made over, new ones going up everywhere. You know the kind of street Main Street always used to be in our section, half plank road and turnpike, and the rest mud-hole, and a lot of stores and doggeries strung along with false fronts, a story higher than the back, and here and there a decent building with the gable end of the public, and a courthouse, and jail, and two taverns, and three or four churches. Well, they're all there in Moffat yet, but architecture has struck it hard, and they've got a lot of new buildings that needn't be ashamed of themselves anywhere. The new courthouse is as big as St. Peter's, and the grand opera house is in the highest style of the art. You can't buy a lot on that street for much less than you can buy a lot in New York. Or you couldn't when the boom was on. I saw the place just when the boom was in its prime. I went out there to work the newspapers and the syndicate business, and I got one of their men to write me a real bright snappy account of the gas, and they just took me in their arms and showed me everything. Well, it was wonderful, and it was beautiful, too. To see a whole community stirred up like that, just like a big boy, all hope and high spirits, and no discount on the remotest future, nothing but perpetual boom to the end of time, I tell you, it warmed your blood. Why, there were some things about it that made you think what a nice kind of world this would be if people ever took hold together, instead of each fellow fighting it out on his own hook, and the devil take the hindmost. They made up their minds at Moffat that if they wanted their town to grow, they'd got to keep their gas public property. So they extended their corporation line so as to take in pretty much the whole gas region round there. And then the city took possession of every well that was put down, and held it for the common good. Anybody that's a mind to come to Moffat and start any kind of manufacture can have all the gas he wants free, and for fifteen dollars a year you can have all the gas you want to heat and light your private house. The people hold on to it for themselves, and, as I say, it's a grand sight to see a whole community hanging together and working for the good of all, instead of splitting up into as many different cutthroats as there are able-bodied citizens. See that fellow? Fulkerson broke off, and indicated with a twirl of his head a short, dark, foreign-looking man going out of the door. They say that fellow's a socialist. I think it's a shame they're allowed to come here. If they don't like the way we manage our affairs, let him stay at home, Fulkerson continued. 
They do a lot of mischief, shooting off their mouths round here. I believe in free speech and all that, but I'd like to see these fellows shut up in jail and left to jaw one another to death. We don't want any of their poison." March did not notice the vanishing socialist. He was watching, with a teasing sense of familiarity, a tall, shabbily dressed elderly man who had just come in. He had the aquiline profile uncommon among Germans, and yet March recognized him at once as German. His long, soft beard and moustache had once been fair, and they kept some tone of their yellow in the grey to which they had turned. His eyes were full, and his lips and chin shaped the beard to the noble outline which shows in the beards the Italian masters liked to paint for their last suppers. His carriage was erect and soldierly, and March presently saw that he had lost his left hand. He took his place at a table where the overworked waiter found time to cut up his meat and put everything in easy reach of his right hand. Well, Fulkers had resumed. They took me round everywhere in Moffat, and showed me their big wells, lit em up for a private view, and let me hear them purr with the soft accents of a mass meeting of locomotives. Why, when they let one of these wells loose in a meadow that they'd piped it into temporarily, it drove the flame away forty feet from the mouth of the pipe, and blew it over half an acre of ground. They say when they let one of their big wells burn away all winter, before they had learned how to control it, that well kept up a little summer all around it. The grass stayed green, and the flowers bloomed all through the winter. I don't know whether it's so or not, but I can believe anything of natural gas. My, but it was beautiful when they turned on the full force of that well, and shot a Roman candle into the gas—that's the way they light it—and a plume of fire, about twenty feet wide and seventy-five feet high, all red and yellow and violet, jumped into the sky, and that big roar shook the ground under your feet. You felt like saying, Don't trouble yourself. I'm perfectly convinced. I believe in Moffat. Well, drawled Fulkerson with a long breath, that's where I met old Dryfoos. Oh, yes, Dryfoos, said March. He observed that the waiter had brought the one-handed German a towering glass of beer. Yes, Fulkerson laughed. We've got round the Dryfoos again. I thought I could cut a long story short, but I seem to be cutting a short story long. If you're not in a hurry, though— Not in the least. Go on as long as you like. I met him there, in the office of a real estate man, speculator, of course, everybody was in Moffat, but a first-rate fellow, and public-spirited as all get-out. And when Dryfoos left, he told me about him. Dryfoos was an old Pennsylvania Dutch farmer, about three or four miles out of Moffat, and he lived there pretty much all his life. Father was one of the first settlers. Everybody knew he had the right stuff in him, but he was slower than molasses in January, like those Pennsylvania Dutch. He got together the largest and handsomest farm anywhere around there, and he was making money on it, just like he was in some business somewhere. He was a very intelligent man. He took the papers and kept himself posted, but he was awfully old-fashioned in his ideas. He hung on to the doctrines as well as the dollars of the dads. It was a real thing with him. Well, when the boom began to come, he hated it awfully, and he fought it. He used to write communications to the weekly newspaper in Moffat—they've got three dailies there now—and throw cold water on the boom. 
He couldn't catch on no way. It made him sick to hear the clack that went on about the gas the whole while, and that stirred up the neighborhood and got into his family. Whenever he'd hear of a man that had been offered a big price for his land, and was going to sell out and move into town, he'd go and labor with him, and try to talk him out of it, and tell him how long his fifteen or twenty thousand would last him to live on, and shake the Standard Oil Company before him, and try to make him believe it wouldn't be five years before the Standard owned the whole region. Of course, he couldn't do anything with them. When a man's offered a big price for his farm, he don't care whether it's by secret emissary from the Standard Oil or not. He's going to sell and get the better of the other fellow if he can. Dryfoos couldn't keep the boom out of his own family, even. His wife was with him. She thought whatever he said and did was just as right as if it had been thundered down from Sinai. But the young folks were sceptical, especially the girls that had been away to school. The boy that had been kept at home because he couldn't be spared from helping his father manage the farm was more like him, but they contrived to stir the boy up, with the hot end of the boom, too. So, when a fellow came along one day and offered old Dryfoos a cool hundred thousand for his farm, it was all up with Dryfoos. He'd have liked to have kept the offer to himself and not done anything about it, but his vanity wouldn't let him do that, and when he let it out in his family, the girls outvoted him. They just made him sell. He wouldn't sell all. He kept about eighty acres that was off in some piece by itself, but the three hundred that had the old brick house on it and the big barn, that went and Dryfoos bought him a place in Moffat, and moved into town to live on the interest of his money. Just what he had scolded and ridiculed everybody else for doing. Well, they say that at first it seemed like he would go crazy. He hadn't anything to do. He took a fancy to that land agent, and he used to go and set in his office and ask him what he should do. I hain't got any horses, I hain't got any cows, I hain't got any pigs, I hain't got any chickens, I hain't got anything to do from sun-up to sundown. The fellow said the tears used to run down the old fellow's cheeks, and if he hadn't been so busy himself, he believed he should have cried too. But most of people thought old Dryfoos was down in the mouth, because he hadn't asked more for his farm when he wanted to buy it back and found they held it at a hundred and fifty thousand. People couldn't believe he was just homesick and heartsick for the old place. Well, perhaps he was sorry he hadn't asked more. That's human nature, too. After a while, something happened. That land agent used to tell Dryfoos to get out to Europe with his money and see life a little, or go and live in Washington where he could be somebody. But Dryfoos wouldn't, and he kept listening to the talk there, and all of a sudden he caught on. He came into that fellow's one day with a plan for cutting up the eighty acres he'd kept into town lots and he'd got it all plotted out so well, and had so many practical ideas about it, that the fellow was astonished. He went right in with him, as far as Dryfoos would let him, and glad of the chance, and they were working the thing for all it was worth, when I struck Moffat. Old Dryfoos wanted me to go out and see the Dryfoos and Hendry edition. Guess he thought maybe I'd write it up, and he drove me out there himself. Well, it was funny to see a town made streets driven through two rows of shade trees hard and soft planted cellars dug and houses put up regular queen anne style too with stained glass all at once dryfoos apologized for the streets because they were hand-made said they expected their street-making machine tuesday 
and then they intended to push things. Fulkerson enjoyed the effect of his picture on March for a moment, and then went on. He was mighty intelligent, too, and he questioned me up about my business as sharp as I ever was questioned. Seemed to kind of strike his fancy. I guess he wanted to find out if there was any money in it. He was making money hand over hand then, and he never stopped speculating and improving till he'd scraped together three or four hundred thousand dollars. They said a million, but they like round numbers at Moffat, and I guess half a million would lay over it comfortably and leave a few thousands to spare, probably. Then he came on to New York. Fulkerson struck a match against the rib side of the porcelain cup that held the matches in the centre of the table and lit a cigarette which he began to smoke, throwing his head back with a leisurely effect, as if he had got to the end of at least as much of his story as he meant to tell without prompting. March asked him the desired question, "'What in the world for?' Fulkerson took out his cigarette and said with a smile, "'To spend his money and get his daughters into the old Knickerbocker society. Maybe he thought they were all the same kind of Dutch.' "'And has he succeeded?' Well, they're not social leaders yet, but it's only a question of time, generation or two, especially of time's money, and if every other week is the success it's bound to be. You don't mean to say, Fulkerson, said March, with a half-doubting, half-daunted laugh, that he's your angel? That's what I mean to say, returned Fulkerson. I ran onto him in Broadway one day last summer. If you ever saw anybody in your life— you're sure to meet him in Broadway again, sooner or later. That's the philosophy of the bunco business. Country people from the same neighborhood are sure to run up against each other the first time they come to New York. I put out my hand, and I said, Isn't this Mr. Dryfoos from Moffat? He didn't seem to have any use for my hand. He let me keep it, and he squared those old lips of his till his imperial stuck straight out. Ever see Bernhardt in L'Etrangere? Well, the American husband is old Dryfoos all over. No moustache and hay-coloured chin-whiskers cut slanting froze the corners of his mouth. He cocked his little grey eyes at me, and, says he, Yes, young man, my name is Dryfoos, and I'm from Moffat, but I don't want no present of Longfellow's works illustrated, and I don't want to taste no fine teas, but I know a policeman that does, and if you're the son of my old friend Squire Strofeld, you'd better get out. Well, then, said I, how would you like to go into the newspaper syndicate business? He gave another look at me, and then he burst out laughing, and he grabbed my hand, and he just froze to it. I never saw anybody so glad. Well, the long and the short of it was that I asked him round here to Moroni's to dinner, and before we broke up for the night we had settled the financial side of the plan that's brought you to New York. I can see, said Fulkerson, who had kept his eyes fast on March's face, that you don't more than half like the idea of Dryfoos. It ought to give you more confidence in the thing than you ever had. You needn't be afraid, he added, with some feeling, that I talked Dryfoos into the thing for my own advantage. Oh, my dear Fulkerson, March protested, all the more fervently, because he was really a little guilty. Well, of course not. I didn't mean you were but I just happened to tell him what I wanted to go into when I could see my way to it, and he caught on of his own accord. The fact is, said Fulkerson, I guess I'd better make a clean breast of it now I'm at it. 
Dryfoos wanted to get something for that boy of his to do. He's in railroads himself, and he's in mines and other things, and he keeps busy, and he can't bear to have his boy hanging round the house doing nothing just as if he was a girl. I told him that the great object of a rich man was to get his son into just that fix, but he couldn't seem to see it, and the boy hated it himself. He's got a good head, and he wanted to study for the ministry when they were all living together out on the farm, but his father had the old-fashioned ideas about that. You know, they used to think that any sort of stuff was good enough to make a preacher out of, but they wanted the good timber for business, and so the old man wouldn't let him. You'll see the fellow. You'll like him. He's no fool, I can tell you, and he's going to be our publisher, nominally at first, and actually when I've taught him the ropes a little. End of chapter 11